We'll be reading verses 18 through verse 27 today. Last week we spoke to you about, and the title of our thought was One Good Trade. That thought um, connects with this one today, and I didn't realize that it would until the very end of my time of prayer and preparation, even this morning. But it does in such a way that today I want to talk to you about one bad trade. One bad trade. This is a very familiar scripture lesson to it to you. No doubt you've heard many sermons on this rich young ruler. I've given a number through my years in trying to preach and to pastor churches. It's where God has placed us once again, and you've heard it before. You've heard Bible studies on it. You've read it, no doubt, yourself in the Scripture many times. And I don't know that there will be anything new that I will present to you this morning from the Word of God, but as Solomon said, there really isn't anything new under the sun. And so we pray this morning that this that we might already know might become to us again renewed, if not new, that we might be reminded of the eternal choice that God sets before everyone in the world. It does not matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your situation and your circumstances are. It does not matter whether you are rich or poor, black or white. It doesn't matter whether you're successful or a failure in your eyes or in anyone else's. It doesn't matter how educated you are. It doesn't matter what your job is. It doesn't matter what your name is, what your genealogy is. It doesn't matter what any of these things are. Because God places this choice in front of us. And this choice that this rich young ruler is going to ask the Lord about is a question I believe that we all ask. It's the million-dollar question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's the thing that everyone wants to know, truly. And today we want to speak to you about this, this terrible trade that this young man makes. Verse 18, And a ruler asked him, that is Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, that is, the rich young ruler, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad. For he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. 
For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. We want to conclude our reading there. The million-dollar question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We know, of course, already that this rich young ruler is going to make a very terrible decision, at least on this day. We know that unless he changed his mind at some point later in his life, that if he didn't do that, we know where he is right now. That he is in an eternal torment, separated from God, in a place that was not intended for man to go. When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, it was not his will or intention that man would ever go to the place that is called hell. A place of eternal separation, eternal darkness. God did not intend that for man And so many times I think people blame God in this and they'll say things like if God did not want Adam and Eve to sin, why did he place the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden? Why did he even place it there? If if God didn't want them to eat of that tree, why did he put it there? And of course the answer is in the fact that God created you and me for a purpose that is far beyond robotic obedience to our Creator. He placed it there so that we could choose, so that Adam and Eve could show their obedience, and through their obedience, their love to God, by withholding the eating of the fruit of that tree. Had that tree not been in the Garden of Eden, surely they couldn't have eaten the fruit and surely they couldn't have sinned, but neither could they show their love and obedience and trust in God. Without a choice, there is no ability to honor God. And He did not create you like that. He is sovereign over all the universe. I am fully convinced that there is not an atom or a molecule in all of the universe that is not subject to this God of heaven and earth. And there is coming a day when he will call all things before himself. And he will judge according to choices that you and I make. And he will judge you based upon the choices you make. He will not judge you based on the choices I make. Neither will he judge me by the choices that you make. But he planted inside of you the ability to respond to the Spirit of God as he would direct you and guide you to himself. And this question that this rich young ruler asked reminds us of, the, of I believe, the reality of an inward sense within us that there is something more to life than what we see and experience. In fact, we might say it this way. There has to be more to life than what we see. It can't be 
that all that we experience here is just a culmination of a cosmic accident. It can't be that our experiences and circumstances here in this life are just some sort of fated thing that is beyond our ability to impact in any way at all. This question asked by this man is a question I believe that in one way or another, if not with these same words, is a question that we all ask. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And we know that this was asked by a man who, according to the world, had everything already. We don't know his name. The scriptures don't give it to us, but they sure do describe him. And with these three words, rich, young, ruler, we get an idea of who this man was. And with these three words, we are reminded that this man evidently on the surface, on the outside, had everything that a man seeks, that a person seeks in this world. He was rich. He had all of his material and physical needs seen to. The inference here is that he had enough that he didn't have to worry about it for the rest of his days. His wealth was such that he did not worry about where his next meal was coming from. He didn't worry about where he would uh, house himself and protect himself and his family from the world. He didn't worry about his clothes. He didn't worry about his earthly needs. They were seen to. And yet he asked this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He saw that even those among his friends who were older and also rich, that they went the way of all of us, and they left this world and had died. And though he was rich here, he still has this question. And I, I find it interesting that it is often, is it not often the case, people who gain everything in this world have this question still. I've got all of the things that the world offers me, all of its riches, all of its glory, all of its honor. I have it in my possession. And it's almost like, is that it? It can't be. There must be more than what I have obtained. He had all the riches that he needed. He was young. Whole life in front of him. At least most of it. He had his youth and he had his health. He had his he had ability to go in and out and do the things that he needed to do. He was strong of body and mind and sharp of eye. And he could go about his life unhindered by the, the, the things that prevent those of us who have aged and this body begins to break down. He had not yet come to that point in his life. He had riches and he had youth and by the way, that's often not a great combination. It wasn't for him. Because he's going to make a bad trade for it. Rich and young. Had all of the things the world is looking to have. Riches and youth and a ruler. One who had position. Influence. This was a man that when he walked down the street, everyone took 
note of. If there were paparazzi in the day, the cameras would be going off. If there were cell phones in the day, everyone would be recording him as he walked down the street. We would see him on the news. This rich young ruler was here in Indianapolis, and he spent some time here. And we would look at him, and we would envy him. And in his heart, he has this question. I have all of these other things. I have everything that this world has to offer to me. But he hears of Jesus. And he asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to have not what I already have or think that I possess? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And he's going to find out that his earthly treasures were the greatest threat to his eternal life. And so too are they for you and me. His eternal, or excuse me, his earthly treasures represented the greatest threat to his eternal life. And they do the same for you and for me. And so I ask you as we begin today, what earthly treasures are you clinging to? What desires of this world threatens your eternal life? What worldly things that you think you have are preventing you from obtaining what you truly need? What earthly things do you think you have? Because I want to tell you that is all that you have is your thought that you have them. Riches can be soon separated from you. Youth, just wait. It flies away. A ruler, a position of authority. Especially in our culture today, we will toss that aside in a heartbeat. People will set you aside quicker than you can imagine. And so this man asks a good question. And he's going to find out that his riches are what stand between him and the answer to his question. And it is the same for you and for me. This world's things. And I don't mean just money. I don't mean just financial position, or even power. I mean those things that are in this world and designed for this world that will one day pass away. It will prevent you and hinder you from finding eternal life. And Jesus says as much after this man in verse 19 or in verse 18 asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he began it with good teacher. And Jesus begins his answer and says, why do you call me good? And he begins to set the scene for the answer that he's going to give him. Why do you call me good? He begins to chop away at this man's idea that man, men, humans, you and me, that we can be good. The first swing of the gospel axe is always at the root of our self-righteousness and our self-holiness. That we believe ourselves to be good. 
And Jesus begins to attack that at the, the issue at its roots. He challenges this man on his notion that he was good because this rich young ruler looked at Christ as just another man, a good teacher perhaps, but he did not look at him as the Son of God. And he begins to take away his understanding that he was good or that any other man was good, that God alone is good. This is, of course, no longer popular today and hasn't been, I suppose, ever, really. The teaching of the Bible that all are sinners, that we're all undone. We are all sinners in the sight of God. We don't want to hear that as men. We want to hear messages that show us just how good we are. And we don't understand the very first principles of the gospel message, which is this. We are indeed all sinners. And if you disagree with me on that, I would challenge you to, in your own mind, even right now, to go back and to think in your mind of the thoughts that you've had in your heart. The intentions that you've had, that if you had the ability, perhaps you even would have made good on. The harm that you would have brought to others out of anger. The impurity that you would have acted on out of lust. It's there in your mind and in your heart, and it has been, and nobody taught you how to do that. It comes naturally to you and to me as sinners. And Jesus challenges him and says, why do you call me good? Why do you think men are good? What evidence do you have that this is true? This is why, by the way, when one is saved for sal- in salvation, one of the beginning points is, is a brokenness and a humility. Humility is the fragrance of an individual who is drawn closer to God. It exudes from them not pride, self-sufficiency. They're not ones that we read about in the seventh chapter of Matthew where they stand before Jesus on the day of judgment and say, Lord, didn't we do all these wonderful things? Aren't we good people? It's not the idea in an individual who's drawn closer to God. Humility, deep, abiding, real Sincere humility before God. Satan wants to do everything he can to prop up your self-esteem. And don't get me wrong. We should have a dignity of personhood. God has created us in his likeness and in his image. And that should come with a dignity. But may it never come with pride. May it never lead to that place. Humility of heart. Those who are mature in their walk with God. It does not drive them to a place of holding their shoulders up and back and their heads high and say, look at all of what I have done. That is not what a child of God who is close to the Lord senses and feels in his or her heart. As you draw closer to God, you begin to exude more and more of a humility and a desire to show who God really is in the world and how little and small you really are. That was not the error 
around this man. That was not the fragrance that one smelled when they were near to him. They smelled pride and self-sufficiency and his own perceived goodness. And the first swing of the gospel axe must be against that idea that we are good. We are sinners in the sight of God. It's what the Bible tells us and teaches us, and it's what experience shows us. But God sent his son into the world. That's the good news of the gospel. The gospel can't be good news if you don't know your need of it. The gospel can't be the news that will bring you to a saving knowledge of God if you do not sense your need of it. And you might say, I'm no different than anyone else. I'm just as good as this person or that person. And I would say, very well, you may be right. And all of us need God. All of us. There's not a one of us who is such a person that they'll stand before God one day and he'll say, you lived a life so good. Come in. Every one of us will go through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. You will not go to heaven on your good works or your perceived goodness or what you think you are. You will enter into eternity based on what and who you are. As a tree falls in the forest, we are told, so it lies. When the last second of the clock ticks off of your clock, you will be as you are for the unending age of eternity. Jesus answers his question and he continues to drive this point home and he says, you've heard the commandments. Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder Do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. He gives them this list of commandments, but I want you to notice which commandments he gave. He listed in in Exodus chapter 20, we read the Ten Commandments. Jesus here lists the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth commandments. He says to this rich young ruler, working with him as only the Lord can, The rich young ruler says, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus immediately responds and says, why do you call men good? There's only one good, that is God. And the first move toward God is the recognition that you are lost and separated from him. And then Jesus says to this man, continuing to work again as only he can, you know the commandments. And he lists the fifth through the ninth commandments. And if you've studied your Ten Commandments, you should know that the fifth through the ninth particularly are commandments given for how we are to relate to one another. That guide human relationships. That tell us how to get along with one another in the world. I want you to note that, that he tells him. And then the, the rich young ruler, because he says, oh, I've, I've done all of those things. Am I good? In fact, he doesn't say that. In Matthew, we read his words, the rich young ruler, and he says, I've done all of these things. What lack I yet? What do I still lack? He knew there was still something. And I at least give this man credit for knowing that much. There's got to be more. There's got to be more, Lord. 
There has to be more. And so Jesus listed them and says, keep these commandments. He said, I've done all of these things. And so Jesus then cuts to the chase in verse 22. One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. This is a sobering thought. Those commandments that Jesus listed for this man to keep. He told him, keep these commandments. And this man said, I have done all of these things. And yet there's still something lacking. This is a sobering thought for us today. You can treat others well and still go to hell. You can be a good person in my estimation and in the estimation of the world. You can obey the fifth through the ninth commandments and not know God. You can be a good little boy, a good little girl, and yet still lacking that that is most needful. The answer to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, comes down to this. Jesus says, sell it all and follow me. He doesn't say sell most of it or sell a portion of it. He doesn't say give me 10%. He doesn't say give me 20 or 80 or 90. He says sell all and follow me. You, you can be, so many make their religion about the fifth through the ninth commandment, these things about how we treat one another. And as important as they are, they're, on, they're in the list. But they're not first are they? Let's read it. Exodus 20. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. There's number one. No other gods before me. None. I must be your one and only God, the one and only object of your worship, the one and only object of your trust, the one and only object of your commitment. There can be none other than me, Jesus or God says. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image, no idolatry. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. In verse 8, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Those came before this 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth commandment that Jesus told this rich young ruler. The reason for the order of the commandments is important. Many have their entire theology or their entire religious world centered around how we treat one another and we gauge and we judge our Christianity based upon how we interact and relate with one another. And again, however important as those things are, and indeed they are, they are secondary. Jesus also was asked one time to summarize the whole of the Old Testament and ask, what's the greatest commandment? And he said it this way, love God, and then love your neighbor. You can't love God 
Or you can't love your neighbor rightly before first loving God, and you can't love God without loving him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. There is a lie that comes straight from Satan that you can withhold a part of yourself from God and he will be satisfied and content. He wants all of you. Jesus says to this rich young ruler, this one thing that you lack, it's this, your earthly riches. And by the way, I don't believe that it is the possession of them. Abraham was a rich man. Job was a rich man before his trial and doubly rich after his trial. Joseph, second most powerful man in Egypt, which made him the second most powerful man in all the world. It isn't the possession of them, the holding of them. It is the love of them, the trust in them, the desire for them and more of them that prevents you from knowing and experiencing the salvation that God has for you and he offers to you and he sets before you this choice. This rich young ruler makes a terrible, terrible trade. Why? Why does he do that? Jesus gives us the answer. Seeing that he had become sad, Jesus says how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Do you see the power of earthly riches? They made him sad. But he chose them over the Lord. Do we need any more evidence of man's fallen condition than that? The things he wants in the world and he loves more than his eternal soul and he loves more than God. He wants them so badly that even though they make him sad, he holds to them. He chooses the things that make his heart broken and his heart empty and his life meaningless and purposeless. And he chooses them instead of the hope and the purpose and the meaning that is found alone in God. Again, I ask you today, what worldly riches are you holding on to? Are you treasuring above God and you're withholding from him and not giving to him to trust him? to find him, to know him, to walk with him, to answer this question and to make a good trade and to let it all go so that you might follow God. And the terrible and deep irony of the misery of the human condition is that they bring it upon themselves. We bring it upon ourselves. We're given the remedy to our, to, our, to our troubles. We're given the hope of eternal life. And we weigh them. And we're told eternal life or the world's riches. And far too many choose the world's riches. And we go away sad. Worse probably than when we showed up to ask the question. Because now we know the answer. We are told in Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 and 14 by Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount the reason that you have to let these riches go in order to find Christ. 
He tells us there that the way to heaven is narrow. Or excuse me, the gate is narrow. The way is hard. The reason that we have to let go of these earthly riches is because the gate to get from here to there won't fit you and your treasures. It's not wide enough. God wants you. He wants you. And he wants you, and he's not interested in your earthly treasures. He wants you, and in order for you to find him, to get through that narrow gate and that hard and difficult way, according to Matthew 7, you're going to have to let go of all your earthly treasures. You're going to have to let them down and take them off of your back so that you can fit through this narrow gate. And you're going to have to go through there saying, Lord, it is you alone that I desire. All of these other things I set aside. I willingly lay them down. I give them to you. All of the things, Father, that I want for my life, I give them to you so that I might know you and know you better. And so that I might go along this narrow way. And by the way, once you're saved and you're on this narrow path, it's going to be really hard for you to gather earthly riches and Continue to make your progress. You're going to come to a standstill. But as you get to this gate and you are asking the question inwardly, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to find God? What must I do to have eternal life? Know that you're going to have to let go and lay down all of your earthly treasures in order to find him. That's just the gospel message. Satan wants you to believe that you can have this world and heaven Satan wants you to believe that you can have your life and a little bit of God. That's not how the Bible describes it. It's not how Jesus spoke the gospel. Why does this man struggle so again? Because he can't let it go. He can't let them down. And Jesus says, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, that little place where the thread goes through the needle. It's easier for a camel to go through that little opening than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, it can't be done. It can't be done. You're not going to find God while holding on to this world. To find God requires both of your hands. And if either one of them or both are full of the things of the world, you will not be able to grab a hold of them. And if too much of this world's treasure is uh, attending your life, you will not be able to get through the gate. As disciples say then, then how is it possible? How can anyone be saved? Because they saw the truth of the situation. Why didn't they ask, how then can a rich person be saved? That's not what they ask. They ask, how then can anyone be saved? Because they knew the truth of the matter. That in the heart of man, in all of us, there is a desire to gain the things of this world. There just is. It's part of our nature, our fallen nature, to want to gather to ourselves this world's good things, this world's riches, this world's promises, this world's hopes. He, is, he knows, these disciples know that that is in the heart of absolutely all of us. 
And so this trouble that this, quote, rich young ruler had is the same struggle that we all have. And so they, in their confusion, say, Lord, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, it's not possible without God. But with God, it is possible. You might say, I've tried to find God. I've tried to live a good life. I have observed those fifth through ninth commandments. All of my life I have strived to be a good person. And yet there is something inward inward that is still saying that question and still presents it to me. What do I lack? Because I know I lack something. I know something is not there. There's an emptiness that we find in being good people when we realize that being good people and being good to one another is not the gospel alone. But in fact, it's not the gospel at all when it is separated from a selling of everything here to cling to him there. And you might say, I've tried. I've tried to be a good person. I've tried to live my life good. I've tried to be honest. I've tried to be respectable. I've tried to care for my family. I've tried to be a good friend. I've tried to be a good spouse. I've tried to be a good child. I've tried to be a good employee. I've tried all these things. And maybe there's the problem. Stop trying to be good. You're not going to be without Christ, without God. You can try and try and try and try. And you're still going to have that question in your heart, what do I lack? And it's going to come down to this response, sell it all and follow me. Do you think God is going to settle for less? than all of you. Do you think that God is satisfied with part of your heart? Do you think you're going to get through the gate with some of the things that you treasure in this life? Well, here you are standing at the very gate of the way that leads to eternal life. You're standing there. I want you in your mind's eye to picture yourself standing there. The gate is open. The way is is narrow. You can't get through there with all the things that you've brought. You can't get through to that place that is called heaven, that is home for you, that God intends for you to go. You're standing there and the gate is open, but, but you notice as that gate is open, you do notice that it is closing. Perhaps ever so slowly, but it's closing. And you know that if you delay for too long, that the gate is going to close. It's open now. It's not wide. You can't go through there with the things of this world. You can't go through there even with a friend, a brother, a mother, a sister, a father. You can't go through there with them. You've got to go alone. You've got to walk through that narrow gate that just has room for one at a time. 
You can't let them, you can't hold on to them. You can't hold on to the things of this world and get through that gate. You just can't, and you know it. And so there you are with this choice. And God's saying, come to me. Make this good trade that we spoke about last week. Don't make this terrible trade as this rich young ruler looks around, examines everything, sees the gate, knows the way, sees it's narrow, and says, no. No, I'll... I can't. I won't. And if he went that way for the rest of his life, for him, the gate closed. And he let go of the riches anyway. He let him go anyway. Against his will, perhaps. Maybe he died an old, old, old man, surrounded by his family. Everything the world has to offer. What would he have given to go back to that moment when the gate was open? What will you give? What would I? Set down your earthly treasures. Go through the gate. Repent and believe the gospel which is that you and I are sinners. But Christ died on the cross. He paid that penalty. He came to this world and he bled and he died for you, for me, for his father. To make right what we had made wrong. Repent of that sin. Stop asking the question, how can I be good? Stop looking at people and say, and judging whether a person's good or not. Jesus says, we are all undone. Why do you call men good? And I would ask you and I would beg you to do this. Trade the whole world for Christ. Trade it all. Set it down. And go through the gate. That is the answer to his question. That is the only answer to the question. That is the answer the Bible gives to us again and again and again. He calls Abraham to leave everything. He calls David. He calls all these men, Isaiah, Elijah, Ezekiel, all of these men and women in the scripture and his apostles, they left all and followed him and Peter says that to him just shortly after this. Lord, we've left everything. What shall we have? And the Lord reminded him of his eternal gift. I pray that God would help you if you don't yet know him and you're standing at the gate. That you'd, you'd realize the danger that earthly desires present to you. The eternal threat that they represent and that you'd lay them down, and that you'd go through this gate of repentance and faith. Faith in Christ. Put your trust in Him, and do that until you know you've found Him. Till you know 
that you've been forgiven until you know that heaven is your home. Not until someone else tells you, but until you yourself know. That is our prayer for you. If the Lord's dealing with you today, we want to invite you to prayer. We'll pray with you. We'll ask God in this, to send the Holy Spirit among us in a mighty way to convict and to draw. But this is a gate you must walk through. We can't shove you through it. You're going to have to go willingly. God help us today. Let's have a song if we can.